Now I'm going to have you open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, please. Matthew chapter 26, uh, we moved last week from the upper room back to the Mount of Olives. We are in the last act of the most detailed week that we have in the life of Christ. Uh, but what a week it's been and what a change from the triumphal entry to now. I mean, if you think back to the beginning of this Passion Week, although we've spent much more than a week here, you think back to the beginning of this week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the praise of thousands upon thousands of people. And yet by the end of this night that we're studying, by the end of this Thursday night, he is alone in a garden, betrayed and abandoned by his disciples. At the beginning of this week, he went into the temple and he demonstrated this remarkable authority to teach, to cleanse the temple, to heal. Uh, He shuts down the aggression and the antagonism of the religious leaders. And by the end of this night, he's going to stand silent before his accusers, submitting to their wicked judgment against him. It's the same city, but in a lot of ways, we are a long way from Sunday to Thursday. Last week, we saw that sobering prediction that the disciples would all fall away. For the best of their intention, their spiritual arrogance wouldn't even survive the night. As Jesus says, you are all going to fall away. Peter says, though everyone else might fall, surely not me. And Jesus says, not only are you going to fail, not only are you going to flee, not only are you going to fall away, but you're going to deny that you even know me three times by the time the sun rises. And their spiritual pride, their arrogance makes it so they can't even hear that, but one by one, no, not me, no, not me. Even if I have to go with you to the point of death, I will follow you. And today, we move into the first part of that promised failure. Uh, Today, we come into the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's not an understatement to say that the greatest battle in human history takes place in this quiet garden. Not a battle between men and weapons, horses, chariots, but a battle for the eternal soul of God's people. Because as we come into this passage today, the Son of God is going to look into the cup that the Father has given him to drink with all the pain and all the horror that that entails. And the question is, will the Son be obedient to the will of the Father? Will the King of Kings drink the cup that has been given to him? And the answer to that question determines our eternity. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. Today we're going to be in 26, verse 36 to 46. I'm going to read 36 to 39 to set up where we're going. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. This is what God's word says. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let's pray. Lord, as as much as we would like to think that we bring enlightenment and understanding and wisdom to everything that we approach, we recognize that when it comes to spiritual things, we are wholly dependent on you. Uh, We don't come to the Bible and see it as a list of stories, but Lord, we see it as the truth and the bedrock and the foundation of our faith. So Lord, as we come to your word, open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things. Uh, Open our eyes so that we don't just read words, but so that we see the truth that's there. Lord, we open our hearts so that we can be receptive 
and respond rightly to these things. Whether we're familiar with it or whether this is the first time, whether we've been a believer for five decades, five minutes, or whether we don't know what we believe, we need you to change our hearts. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are people in our lives that we look at and they tend to be kind of these one-dimensional figures. Not that they're shallow, but just that the way that we see them is occupied by this one thing. Uh, it might be what they do in their job. It might be how they respond to a particular situation. And for me, uh, one of those people was my grandfather. My grandfather was an important part of my life. It wasn't just a grandfather. They lived within five minutes of us wherever I lived growing up. And he was very, very integral into my life. And I loved him dearly, and I knew he loved me dearly. There was certainly love and affection there. But for me, my grandfather was kind of this picture of strength. Um, you never had to wonder what Papa was thinking, and you never had to wonder if you disagreed with him who was right. He would tell you he was right. So throughout my whole life, because he worked hard, because he knew what he believed, because he did the same thing all the time, he was so very faithful in all that he did, he was kind of this pillar of strength, this unassailable figure who was just steadfast and immovable in all that he did until I left for college. And as I was going to the Air Force Academy, I remember the last time that I left, he ended up getting cancer and dying uh, during my first year there. But the last time that I saw him before I left, um, as we said goodbye, he got emotional, and not like single tear, but really sad. And I'd never seen him that way. And I was forced to see something that I guess I always mentally acknowledged was there, but I never experientially saw. And it was kind of jarring. We're accustomed to thinking of Christ maybe in these theological boxes and constructs. And at once we see Christ exalted and lifted up and we recognize that Jesus Christ is truly God. And at other times we know that theologically we ought to say that he is also truly man and somehow those things mix together. But here in the garden we see this great contrast. Jesus Christ high and lifted up, the same Jesus Christ who has the authority to cast out demons, to heal with the word, to raise the dead, falling on his face before the Father in bitter anguish. We've seen tension all the way through Matthew's Gospel, but maybe no more so than in the garden on this night. And we would never say it. But I think sometimes we think if Jesus was God, and he is, we acknowledge that, then really how hard could any of this have been? If he is God, and if he is who he is, then was any of this really that bad? And today we see the Messiah just hours before the cross, going through the greatest struggle that we've seen to this point in the gospel. And the first thing that we're going to look at today together is the, the preparation for what is coming, the son's preparation for what's coming. And starting in verse 36, we're brought to a very specific place with this. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Last week we talked a little bit about kind of the movement. They've, they've gone in and out of the city every day. You had to celebrate Passover within the city of Jerusalem. God had chosen a specific place for his people to celebrate the feast that he had told them to prepare. 
Uh, You don't get to choose how you worship. God determines how you respond to him in obedience. And so they were in the city celebrating the Passover, and now they've moved outside the city, and it says they're going back toward the Mount of Olives, and this is a familiar thing. We know that the city is crowded, that it is packed for the Passover, and it's most likely that they're staying in Bethany. Mark's Gospel says that they go back and forth. And over these last couple of hours, a lot has happened. The Passover meal has been celebrated and is now over. Judas has gone out, and Judas has not come back yet. Jesus has washed them. Jesus has prayed for them. Jesus has showed them this new institution of the Lord's Supper. And now they're walking back, and the night is late, and they're going on a familiar road. Luke says that it was their custom to go to the Mount of Olives. Mark, or I'm sorry, John chapter 18, verse 2 says this, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. They're not just going to a night, a place where they can spend the night. They're going back to a very familiar place. This is a garden called Gethsemane. It means olive press. This likely would have been an enclosed area where they press the olives to get the precious oil out of there. This is a place of seclusion. This is a place of quiet. And again, we know the scene in our head because we've been at it since Sunday school, maybe for many of us, but understand in the story that is being woven here, in the narrative, the human element here, if you are Jesus, this is the place where knowing what is coming, there's the opportunity for quiet. In the middle of a busy, bustling city, even at night, there's an opportunity for quiet. And if you're Judas, and you're looking for every available opportunity to arrest him where you won't cause a riot, somewhere out of the public eye, this is the place. And so everything comes to a head here in Gethsemane. And in light of that, Jesus says, sit here while I go over there and pray. He's not asking them to simply sit and relax. He's asking them to remain here and to keep watch for a specific purpose. And into this place, uh, now we know that there's a few people that he brings along a little bit further. Look at verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is Peter and James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So he's taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Judas has gone out, and Jesus and his 11 disciples begin to cross over and up that Mount of Olives, and he leaves eight of them at a particular spot at the entrance to that garden, and three of them go a little further with him. And that is Peter and James and John, and that's a familiar group for us. They form something of that inner circle of disciples, and it's not that they're better. It's not that they're more saved. It's certainly not that they're more qualified than anybody. We spend a lot of time talking about Peter and his need to continue to learn things. Uh, But these men are going to have a critical role in the church's early development. And more than that, if we remember back, these are three men who have seen a really unique glimpse of the glory of God. All of the disciples have seen him heal. All of, this, all of the disciples have heard him teach. They've all seen him do these remarkable things, uh, multiply loaves and fish. But only these three have seen this glimpse of the glory of Christ. You remember back in Matthew 17 as they went up what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they're there, Jesus, it says, is transfigured, changed before them. And his humanity is kind of pulled back for a second. And you see this radiant glory and he shines with brilliance before them. And they fall on their face. And we remember that it's this powerful picture of just a sliver of the greatness of Christ. They've seen something of the glory of their king. And so really, when James and John later on come and ask for the best seats in the kingdom, it's with the knowledge of what that kingdom kind of looks like, at least knowing the greatness of what the king of that kingdom looks like. But for now, these three, although they've seen his glory, they're going to be faced with something very different. They've had their timeline thrown off over the last week. 
They anticipate and expect the kingdom they've been told. It's not now. They anticipate and expect him to rule and reign. He's told them that he is going to be rejected and betrayed. And what's more, he's told them that they're all going to fall away. And now, to add to all of that, these men are going to have a unique glimpse of the king in his humility. Jesus is going to reveal some of his distress here to them. Now again, you can't separate the natures of Christ. It's not Jesus sometimes acting like God and sometimes acting like a man. It's not Jesus in costume at one point or another. He is absolutely unique in that he is truly God and truly man at all times. But for this moment, they are going to see something of a glimpse of this suffering servant of God from Isaiah 53. They're going to see the depth of the humility of Christ as he agonizes in the garden. And that's really where we go from there because look at what they see. That What they see is the pain and the distress of the king. He takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those are sharp words. There is a real pain, a real internal upheaval that is going on here. And it's not that Jesus is surprised at how things are going. It, for he knows the beginning from the end. He has said all the way back from Matthew chapter 16 and onward that he is going to be rejected, that he is going to Jerusalem, that he's going to die. But there's more to it than that. There's more than just the understanding of physical suffering. There's the fact that Jesus knows all of what is coming. There's something kind of tempering, kind of sheltering and not knowing the details. Um, when I go to get a shot at the doctor, which my wife has to make the appointment for, otherwise I won't, but when I go to get a shot at the doctor, I can't look at it. I can't look at what's coming. There's some comfort in ignorance there. If I try to, it doesn't end up well. Uh, I tried to watch one of my wife's epidurals before she had one of our kids, and by the end of that shot, I was invited to sit down so that I didn't faint, and then promptly kicked out of the room so that I wouldn't cause a distraction. I want to look away from pain. I want to look away from the distress that I know is coming. You have to understand that Jesus cannot look away. Jesus cannot assume the best about what is going to happen. He knows. He, he knows the awesome and terrible reality of what is about to come. And so he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Literally, my soul is surrounded by grief, hemmed in, to the point of death. Uh, you have to understand the grief, the anguish here is taking a physical toll. And so he says, remain here and keep watch. And he's not saying guard the door from the other guys. He's not saying make sure that Judas doesn't find us. He's asking them to keep watch, to pray along with him. And we know that because he asks them that very specifically later. But we're kind of forced to ask at this point, why is this so hard? You ever wonder that? If Jesus knows all things and he does, why, why is this so very difficult? Or maybe even more than that, why is it that Jesus is so uh, troubled and burdened by what is coming when we know that uh, men and women who have been martyrs for the church for hundreds, of, a thousand years, have been able to face their death with joy and even hope? Why is it that Christ comes to what is his death with anguish, with heartache? Well, it's because Christ isn't a martyr. He's the lamb. He's not going to die because of his faith. He's going to die to secure those in their faith. And more than that, he knows that what is coming is not only physical. The cross is terrible. The cross is a wretched end. 
But there's more than that because on the cross, Christ does not bear up under the wrath of the Romans. Christ does not simply suffer the anger of the religious Jews or the rejection of the people. On the cross, for it to have any eternal meaning, Jesus Christ must deal with sin. And the terror of the cross isn't in the nails, although they're terrible. It's in the wrath of the Father rightly poured out against sin. Someone has to bear that wrath. And more than that, He is the only one in all of human history who has no reason to feel that wrath. So we see the Son as He prepares for what is coming and there's this tremendous anguish and pain that He is in and we all respond differently to pain. Some of us withdraw, some of us get angry. Well, when the Son of God, the King of Kings, is faced with pain, His response is to pray. And so we move from the Son's preparation and really His pain now on to the content of the Son's prayer. And the first thing that we see in this prayer is relationship. It's His relationship with the Father. Look at verse 39. And going a little farther, He fell on His face and He prayed. And again, we can't overstate it. When Jesus is in distress, He prays. When the Son of God the one who was there from the beginning with God, who was God, in times of distress, prayed. Uh, We, I think, again, mentally acknowledge that that is the right thing to do, but don't we struggle mightily to actually do that? Uh, My response so often to difficulty and pain is to give God maybe a cursory prayer, but then to really understand that I have to work harder that I have to do better, that I have to fix this, that I have to buckle down and make sure these things happen. And yes, maybe there is an amount of effort that I need to exert in the situation, but until we prayed, then really all we're left doing is doing things on our own strength. And we saw how well doing things on our own strength worked out for the disciples so far. But, but if this Jesus, the one who can heal with the touch, the one who can speak to the very heart of the law, the one who can calm the waves, the one who can raise the dead, if that one Jesus needs to pray, then how much more so do we? And it says he falls on his face before the Father. This is a powerful and intimate picture. This is Jesus in humility. I mean, he's no less perfect. He's certainly no less powerful. But this is a glimpse of the humility that he has taken on. And he begins his prayer by saying, My Father. And understanding that relationship between the Father and the Son is going to be critical in understanding why the cross looks the way that it does moving forward. In his distress, he cries out to his Father. And we know something of that relationship because we have fathers. And some of those relationships are great, and some of them are broken. You have to understand that when it comes to this son and this father, there is a love there that is unlike anything that we can even begin to grasp. This is a perfect love. This is a perfect fellowship that was unbroken from all eternity. There's a love between the son and the father and the father and the son that has been perfect. There's a depth of relationship here, again, that we get a glimpse of in our human relationships, but that we can't really fathom the depths of because of the perfection of relationship within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But he comes to God in intimacy and in humility. He comes to the Father. And one of the really beautiful things about this passage is that because Christ is obedient, 
And we'll get to the end and we know that he's obedient. But because of his obedience, you and I have that same privilege. Oh, we take it for granted, but we have that same privilege of calling God our Father. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 starts this way. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Still in the context of suffering, not so different from the context that Matthew writes of, but because of Christ's obedience, we who have no right to call God anything but Master, Lord, Sovereign, we're able to call Him Father. Not flippantly, not casually, but we're called into this intimate relationship with the God who made us. And when He prays, what does He pray for? When the Son is in agony, what does the Son request? Going a little farther, He fell on His face, and here's what He asks, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That's the battle. Right here in this moonlit garden outside of the walled city of Jerusalem on this night in human history, the greatest spiritual battle in the history of mankind is taking place. The outcome of this prayer has eternal ramifications. I cannot overstate that. The answer to this question, will the Son drink the cup? Has your eternity at stake? My eternity at stake? We talk about the temptation of Christ, and I think, again, maybe in our familiarity with the way the Bible lays things out, we talk about the temptation of Christ as this thing that happened. It is this thing that happened back in Matthew chapter 4, if you're going through Matthew. Uh, Jesus is baptized. Uh, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and we have the temptation of Jesus. Satan says, turn the stones into bread, uh, because after all, you don't deserve to be hungry, do you? He says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, because after all, if you are who you say you are, then surely God's not going to let you strike your foot upon a stone. God would never let you, his son, come to harm, would he? You know what, why don't you just bow down right now and worship me and I'll give the nations to you. After all, if you are who you say you are, if you're the Messiah that Psalm 2 talks about, then aren't the nations your inheritance anyway? I can give you all of that now. Skip the wait. Skip everything that we both know is supposed to come. You can have it all now. And we know that Jesus responds perfectly. We know that Jesus responds with Scripture. We know that Jesus responds with absolute authority. And we tend to kind of leave it there. Temptation passed, Satan defeated, and we can move on with the gospel. But that's not the case at all. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is tempted in every way as we are, but that he never fell into sin. We can look back at Matthew's gospel. We look at the other gospel accounts and we can see temptation involved in so many of the aspects of Christ's life. Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Peter gives that great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well done, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father who is in heaven did. And from that point on, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And what does Peter say? No, you're not. And what is his response? Not, Peter, let me explain this to you again. It's get behind me, Satan. Why? Because there's a very real temptation when Peter says, no, you're not, to say, 
You're right. If I'm going to build my church, and if I'm this Christ, the Son of the living God, I don't need to die. When there was a mob that wanted to seize him and make him king by force, don't think that there's no temptation to skip the cross and move straight to the crown. Jesus bore up under temptation, but to a greater degree than we will, because eventually at some point I give in to my temptation. I might feel it to this level, but when I fall to it, it stops. Jesus experiences temptation to the degree that, that is so great because he never gives in to it. You have to understand, this is Satan's last chance. Jesus knows what happens if he is obedient. And Satan knows that way back in the garden in Genesis 3.15, there was a promised head crusher. And that if that one, if that seed proves to be worthy and proves to be obedient, then it is his doom as well. And his only hope now is to make this so horrifying so despicable, so unthinkably agonizing that the son would skip the cross. And so behind what we see here is this spiritual reality that recognizes that Christ not only knows the physical pain, but Christ is undergoing a spiritual battle that you and I cannot even fathom, that I doubt was ever present at any point before human history to this point. And we're given the content of that heartfelt cry to his father, the one that he loves and the one who loves him with that perfect love more than any human father to son. He cries out to his father. And again, if we're putting the gospels together, Mark's gospel says that part of that is all things are possible for you to, for you. As Jesus cries out to the father, he's crying out to the father, knowing that God, the father can do anything that God created the world. Christ was with him. That The Father gave the law to his people. All things are possible for you. And to the God for whom all things are possible, he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Does Jesus mean that? Does Jesus mean that if there's another way, that I would take that? Would you ever really believe that he had a human nature like yours if it wasn't true? That, that is a real cry. In his humanity, he would move beyond that agony that's coming. It doesn't make him disobedient. That makes him human. That makes him sympathetic with your weakness. That is a good thing to see the reality of that plea. It reminds us that we have a great high priest who is like us, not who is separated from us. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And why does he use that image of the cup? We've just come from the Passover with its various cups and their meanings and the new meaning that he's put in the cup, the cup that is the blood of this new covenant. Why does he use the image of the cup? And it's because if you look through the Old Testament, in particular, this idea of the cup is a picture of the stored up wrath of God that is poured out at appropriate times. If you want to look at it this week, read Psalm 11, read Psalm 75, Read Isaiah 51, read Jeremiah 25, read Jeremiah 49. Uh, this idea of the image of the cup as something that bears the wrath of God poured out against sin. And Jesus has actually referred to it earlier in Matthew's Gospel if we're paying attention. Remember, James and John, they see his glory on that Mount of Transfiguration. And them and Mama come up to Jesus and they say, uh, you know, we want the best seats in the house. 
When this kingdom comes in, we want to be at the right and the left, the places of honor. And Jesus' response to them is, I don't think you know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup, he says, that I'm about to drink? And what do they say? In their arrogance, yep, absolutely. Kingdom cup, bring it. We are there, sign us up. They're not able. They can't bear the cup that he's about to drink. They're not even going to stand with him through the rest of this night. So Jesus looks into this cup, and it's this cup of the wrath of God. And he knows. It's not just, again, it is not for Jesus just this intellectual idea that God is rightly angry with sin. Keep in mind who Jesus is. He is one with the Father. He has been with the Father from the beginning. He knows experientially the holiness of God and the terror and nature, of the despicable nature of sin. He has seen God's judgment poured out on sin. He was there when the flood decimated humanity because of their sin. He has seen plagues poured out on Egypt because of their sin. He has seen the people of Israel punished over and over for their sin, sometimes in terrifying ways. But what do all of those accounts of judgment have in common? There's salvation offered in the midst of it. Noah, obey, and you and your family will be spared. Israelites, obey, and I'll pass over you and spare your firstborn. Even Israel, even when Israel would fail time and time again, you see Moses go before God and say, spare these people. Not because they're good and not because they deserve it, but spare them because you are merciful. Spare them because you made these promises. And what do we see? We see God bring this stubborn and hard-hearted people into the land that he had promised. Not because they are faithful, but because he is faithful. But as Christ looks into this cup that has been given to him to drink, what does he know? There's no mercy through it. There's no out from it. There's no staying the hand of God in this. If he drinks the cup, he drinks it to the last drop. And he's going to do it absolutely alone. We say, why does he approach death this way? Why is this such a struggle? Why is this different than any other martyr who had to face a horrific death all through history but could go joyfully and confidently? Because Jesus does this alone. He knows the severity of what he will face. And because he does this, everyone else who dies for their faith throughout history does it strengthened, encouraged, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so knowing this, in his humanity, he cries out to his Father, is there any way? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And with God, all things are possible. See, that's the thing. The power is there to put a stop to this, isn't it? In a moment, Christ could have said, enough. And the angels come and deal with his enemies in a way that they couldn't imagine. In a moment, he could have revealed that glory that we saw just a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration, and this would have been done. In a moment, he could have said, enough. And he could have gone back to the right hand of the Father. And God would remain holy. But if Christ abandons this, he goes back to the Father, but he goes alone. 
He doesn't lead captive a host of captives. He doesn't lead with him many sons and daughters who he calls his brethren. If he says enough, he goes alone. And God is still holy and sin is still terrible and our judgment is just eternally sealed. And so we come to the last line of his prayer and we see this resolution. And it's this glorious thing for us and this terrible reality for him. Not as I will. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Knowing everything, he submits to the Father. Deserving nothing, he submits to the will of the Father. He is the only one to perfectly submit to the will of the Father. Every day of his incarnation, every moment of his earthly ministry, he was perfectly submissive to the will of the Father. He was perfect and obedient even to the point of death on a cross. It's this unimaginable picture of humility and submission. And that's why Paul in Philippians 2, that familiar passage picks up on this. He's talking to that church in Philippi that he loves and he says that you need to have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. You need to think of others and their needs as more important than you. And you say that's hard. You say I can't do that. Well, look at Christ. Look at Christ. He says have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, equal with God, but he didn't consider that something to be held on to and clung to. But instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That submission is so vibrant and so clear right here in the garden. And you have to understand that that submission, that willingness to say, not my will, but yours, is what secures that glory, the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That exaltation is secured right here in this garden at Gethsemane. And in contrast to that strength, that resolve, that determined humility and obedience... Now we shift and we look at the disciples. And we see them sleeping. And the first thing that we're going to see is that this challenge that Jesus gives to their failure. Look at verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? What was the command? Keep watch. Stay alert. Stay ready. Stay with me. But they don't watch. They sleep. We are not that far from last week. Arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus says you're all going to fall away. Peter says, though they all might fall away, not me. Jesus says you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no, even if I have to die with you, I will be with you. And one by one by one, on the way down the line. Me too, me too, me too. Not me, Jesus. I will stay with you to the end. And now... The three most intimate relationships that he has with the disciples, this inner circle is found to be praying. And it's, I don't think, a coincidence that he addresses Peter. Peter, you who are going to be faithful even to the death. Peter, it's been an hour. 
And it's easy to knock these guys for their laziness. It's easy to say, if I were there, then surely I would have done better. You read Luke's gospel, the parallel account, in Luke 22, verse 45, says they're sleeping from sorrow. Remember, this is a week that we can't hardly get our minds around. They come in with such expectation, such anticipation. The cheers of the crowds, the power to cleanse the temple, the healing, the teaching, the, the songs of the children, and their continued rejection by the religious leaders. And the hearing that one of them will betray him. And now hearing that they are all going to fall away and understanding that bit by bit this whole thing just seems to be unraveling. And these guys are crushed. Can we not relate to that? Have you not gotten just that one more piece of bad news, just that one more thing, then your soul is so burdened and you feel like there's not... I just want to take a nap. Just, I just want to sleep. Just turn it off for a while and let sleep kind of act as that anesthetic, even for a couple hours. We know it doesn't fix the situation, but at least, at least for a bit I can just sleep and not think about things. You have to understand, that's where these guys are. To think of him dying and leaving was difficult. To hear that they're not as committed as they thought they are would be difficult. To see Christ in this kind of agony, and Hebrews says that he offered up his loud cries. They could hear him in his distress. It's, it's more than they can bear up under in that moment. And so knowing their weakness, knowing their failure, he gives them this very particular charge. Look at verse 41. Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What did he reveal to him when we went through last week? Satan has demanded permission to sift you. Satan wants to grab a hold of you and shake you and find out if there's anything of value there. And they know that they're going to fall, and now they're proven that they're pretty quick to fall. Jesus says, watch and pray. What has he taught them about prayer? Lead us not into temptation. This is all a consistent theme. This is why prayer is so important. And by the way, Jesus has modeled just that, hasn't he? When things are in distress, Jesus has prayed for the will of the Father to be accomplished. So he's not just saying this for effect. He's modeling this right before him. And he says, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have heard a lot of willingness from these guys. I won't leave you. I won't abandon you. Me too, me too, me too. Everyone, none of them want to abandon him. Their spirit is willing. Their self-will is strong, but their flesh is weak. They want to do what they want to do. They want to do even the right thing. But they don't have their own resources to accomplish it. Why do they need to watch and pray? Maybe the better question, why do we need to watch and pray? Because we face that same weakness. Paul writes about it in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Romans 7.24 Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that moves into chapter 8 that talks about the role of the Spirit and the comfort and the assurance that He provides. These men are going to have to learn to function with a strength that is not theirs. Their way, their strength, their resolve has proven time and time again to be nothing but an utter failure. And oh, that you and I would grab a hold of that and learn that lesson a little bit. What is needed from us is not more of our effort. It is more of a reliance on the power of God to do what he has called us to do. 
And if we read verse 42 to 44, we see that same pattern play out. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He cares for them. Even now, he comes to remind them, and then he's right back into the battle, right back to the fight, and he says the same words again. This is an extended prayer. We have a few of them. This is a long time of wrestling with what is going to come. But over and over, he determines to do the will of the Father, and he finds them sleeping again. And when he comes back, Mark's gospel says that at that point, they didn't know the words to answer them. At that point, even Peter runs out of things to say. But as he comes back and he finds them sleeping for that last time, there's no more warnings. There's no more time for prayer. No more pleas to the Father that the cup would pass. Because beginning in verse 45, now 45, now we see the courage of the Son. He came to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up and at them, boys. Rest later. Time is now. Not rest later because you've had enough rest right now, but rest later because the time for preparation is over. The outcome has been decided. Under the greatest pressure of anyone in human history, the Son has determined that he will be obedient to the will of the Father. It's fascinating. In the coming weeks, we're going to go through the sham trials, through the beatings, through the crucifixion itself. All of what we would count as the physical horrors of the cross. Not one time from now on does he ask that the cup would be removed. The course is set. It's settled. And he says, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The betrayal is happening. Can you imagine this? In the darkness now, you can probably see the line of torches that are coming. In the quiet of the garden now, you can probably hear the footsteps of the mob, maybe even the clanking of swords and clubs as they come to arrest him. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Sinners! Can you imagine that? The Son of God, the only perfect one to ever exist, is now going to be handed over to sinners. None of this is right. From a human perspective, none of this is right. And Christ gives these orders to his men. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. If I give those instructions, it's let's be going out the back because we might still have a chance here. That's not what he's saying. Get up. We are going directly toward what is coming. He knows the cup and he moves toward it. He knows the betrayer and he walks toward him. He knows the hour is at hand and he moves directly into obedience to the will of the Father. Beautiful picture, the sun in the garden. And long, long ago, a son of God walked in a garden. A son of God who had perfect fellowship with God. 
a son of God who knew the law of God, the commands of God, and the consequences for obedience and disobedience. And in that garden, Satan would come to tempt in hatred to destroy and undo what God had called his own and what God had called good. And in that garden, Adam, who Luke calls a son of God, failed and fell. He determined that his desires trumped the will of God. And as in Adam, all died. Many years later, the Son of God would come into a garden. But this garden wasn't paradise. This Son of God would move into a garden and he would know what God required. But for Adam, obedience meant life and continued fellowship with God. For Christ... Obedience meant death and the wrath of the Father. But where Adam failed, Christ doesn't. Where the first Adam fell and brought death, what Paul calls the last Adam, the greater Adam, was faithful and brought life and salvation to his people. This is a remarkable scene. So how do we respond? Well, the first thing is (laughs) we could probably stand to be reminded of the difference between intention and action. Spiritual discipline trumps good intentions. The flesh and the spirit are sometimes still very much at war with each other. My spirit being willing, my flesh being weak. The tragedy is that instead of recognizing that and responding to it as I should, most often I simply make excuses for the flesh. I would have done what was right, but I was tired. I would have responded rightly to God today, but all of these people did all of these things to me, and so it was impossible. Instead of waging war against the response of the flesh, we coddle it and excuse it and ignore it, and we wonder why our spiritual life is minimal and anemic at best. Could it be that we continually try to approach spiritual problems on our own strength? And what's the call? Watch and pray. Be aware of the reality of temptation. Be deadly aware of yours and mine own weakness. And instead of attempting to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and fight against what you know to be wrong, rely on the God who is the one that promised to bring us through those temptations. Never by our own strength, but always through His. Second thing, we get to consider the nature of suffering. See, because we're weak not just physically weak, but because we're human, because we're mortal, because we're temporary, we're finite, because we live in a sinful, fallen world, suffering is a matter of course for what we face. We know that we are going to suffer, not everybody to the same degree, certainly not everybody at the same time, but we know that suffering is inevitable. Why does it matter that we see Jesus suffer, not just physically, but in this degree spiritually? Because we do too. 
And if we're honest, I think our greatest struggles, our greatest suffering isn't physical. It's the spiritual response to those physical things. When we cry out to God, and we say, Lord, let this pass from me. This trial, this pain, this agony, Lord, let it pass. And when we're met with that seeming silence from heaven, what's our response? Why does it matter? This matters because we see Christ move through this alone so that we don't have to. Hebrews chapter 2 that we read at the beginning of service says that he became like us. He doesn't help angels. He didn't become an angel to help angels. He doesn't help dogs. He didn't become a dog to help dogs. He became like you and me so that he might be a faithful and merciful and sympathetic high priest to us. In Hebrews 4 verse 14, this is what the author says. He says, Therefore, because we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have the one who's been tempted in all things like we are, but without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need because Christ suffered. He not only sympathizes with us, but that means we can go confidently to God. We don't have to timidly go to God and say, if only you knew what I was suffering, maybe you could help. We don't have to go in anger toward God. If only you cared. If only you knew what this was like. If only you knew what it was to be sick, to be rejected, to have nothing but failure in your life. Then maybe you would understand we don't come to that kind of a God who's far off and disinterested and disaffected. We come to a great and merciful high priest who knows every inch of our human existence and experience except the sin. And so when the Bible says uh, through Peter, cast your anxieties and your cares on him because he cares for you, it's not a stupid spiritual platitude that doesn't mean anything. It's a reality that you are speaking to someone who loves you, who sympathizes with you, who cares for you, and who, by the way, has the power to actually use that to accomplish his good purposes. We never have to walk through suffering wondering if it's valuable. We never have to walk through suffering wondering if it's wasted. We never have to walk through suffering wondering if there's a greater purpose behind it. We know that there always is, which does not make suffering easy. And it does not make suffering desirable, but it makes suffering with hope possible. And not only possible, but the expected result of the life of a believer. And so that brings us to the last question. What do you pray for when you pray? What do I pray for when I pray? God, take this away from me. Often. And that's not bad. Jesus prayed that way. Paul prayed that way. Three times for this thorn in the flesh. Lord, take it away from me. So often the difference is Jesus and Paul make it to that place that I never do, and that is, but not my will, but yours be done. Do you wonder why We have that model of the Lord's Prayer back in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you wonder why it's so valuable to teach that to our children? Can you pray through that prayer and come out unchanged on the other side? Lord, your kingdom come. 
your will be done. Can you pray that and mean it and not approach your suffering differently? What a reminder, this is not your kingdom. This is not what I am, my home is. This is not where my hope is. And so every moment from this to that, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God, accomplish your will, that which is always good and is always perfect and is always for my eternal well-being. God, give us this day our daily bread. That recognition that I have needs. Some of them on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis. Can you pray that and not be reminded that it is God who supplies your needs and not your effort and not my effort? God, forgive us as we forgive others. Isn't that a terrifying one? Lord, let your forgiveness of me be a reflection then of how I forgive others. Oh, I would forgive them if. I'll forgive them when. I forgive them, but. Can we come back to this place in the garden where the Son of God is in anguish before the Father? Is there any reflection of God, forgive them, but no. There is only the solemn and whole commitment of himself to the will of the Father. And because he did that for me, surely I can forgive infinitely less than others. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, how I recognize that day by day by day, my flesh, my heart, my circumstances, the world that I live in will lead me directly into the path of temptation. God, move me out of that. You who know my weaknesses better than I do. You who know my failures better than I do. You who have a strength that I could never muster on my own. Lead me through these things, for you've promised a way out. You've promised that I can be obedient, not through my strength, but through yours. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but instead deliver me from this evil. What do you pray for when you pray? God, fix them. God, fix this. How different it would be if the recurring theme of our prayers was not my will, but yours. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot come to a passage like this and miss our own weakness and failure. What a beautiful reminder that Your strength overcomes our weakness. That your love overcomes our failure. God, your righteousness overcomes our wickedness. Lord, for everyone who calls on you in faith, for those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, there is a salvation promise because it was won that night that the Son of God was willing to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for the joy that was set before him. And now he is not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters, fellow heirs of the King and his kingdom. God, break our hearts for our sin. Make us sensitive to our weakness. And make us people that are wholly dependent on you, to walk through our lives with any manner of obedience. 
And may we be a people that testify to one another of our weakness so that we can boast to one another and to the world around us of your strength, of your power, of your mercy, of your might, of your great salvation. Lord, uh, remove us and exalt you. Change our hearts, change our lives. Lord, change our church. In Christ's name, amen.